0: God, you were good. Everything we've lifted up to you the last few moments, God, we sing with our lips. We want it to come from our hearts. We thank you for how heaven receives our praise. Thank you for the gift of being together, for your presence. We don't know where we would be without it. If I were you, I would have given up on me a long time ago. So thank you for your grace. And I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you'll work through my words and through this worship experience this morning to form us into the image of Jesus. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to welcome everyone to Sycamore View this morning. It's great to see those of you who are here in person and for all of you joining us virtually. Thank you for participating with us today. Kenny, you're a gift, man. What a morning. You, you bless my heart. I was sitting there thinking about Exodus chapter 15, which is the first time we see singing in the Bible. It doesn't happen in Genesis. It's right after, arguably, the greatest story in the Old Testament in Exodus 14, where the people of God are set free. And when they're set free, they are told to take anything they want from the Egyptians. And of all the stuff they took, they made sure they took tambourines because they knew there was going to be something that God was going to do worth praising God for. And this morning, you didn't have a tambourine in your hand, but it's like you, had, you, you handed us one this morning, and you, you led us in songs of victory and freedom. And thank you for the way God used you. I, one of the greatest compliments I feel like I can give a worship minister is not just that they are musically gifted, but that they believe the songs and the lyrics they are leading us in. And your reputation goes, goes ahead of you. I, I thank God for you. I pray blessings on your church today. There's a guy named A.J. Jacobs. He uh, wrote a book about a decade ago called A Year of Living Biblically. And his goal was to take one entire year and to try to follow every single command in the Bible. So 75% of the year, he was going to focus on the Old Testament. And then 25% of the year, he's going to focus on the New Testament. And in order to follow the commands of the Bible, you need to know the commands of the Bible. A.J. Jacobs wasn't a Christian. So I hesitated to read the book because I thought maybe he's making a mockery of of the Bible. But he wasn't. There was a genuine curiosity. So for a year, he tried to live this out. So in the New Testament, he had to try to follow commands of Jesus, like love your enemies and what it means to fast and to pray and to give. Uh, Even in the Old Testament, there are commands about... uh, and, And this is where it really messed with him because to follow every command in the Bible... And he wasn't a Christian, meant that he still had to pray certain prayers and engage in acts of worship. And what really messed with him were some of the commands. Now he knew he didn't want to follow some of the commands that could get him in prison or get him him in trouble. So he lived in New York City, so he didn't sacrifice goats out in the middle of the street. All right, he had to he had to try to pay attention to things he wore. But then, like these commands about stoning people who commit adultery. like So what he would do is he would walk through Central Park and where he saw people who were engaging in PDA and it didn't look look like they were married, he would come up behind them with little pebbles and would just throw them at his back. He tried to follow every command in the Bible. What really messed with him were some of the commands about who is clean and who is unclean. Because this, is, this messed with the people of God. This messed with Jewish society. This formed class, uh, classifications and categories throughout all of Jewish society. So he had to try to think through who's clean and who's unclean. And as you read the Old Testament, one thing it talks about, one of the commands is that throughout the year, it was thought or considered that there are times when women were unclean. And if they sat in something, it became unclean too. So because of this, he had to take a chair everywhere he went, every restaurant he went into, because he didn't know if the chair was clean or unclean. He didn't know who had sat there, so he took his own chair everywhere. One day, he had been a jerk to his wife. He came home after a long day of work. He went to sit on the couch, and his wife said, "Uh, Sorry, baby, I sat on the couch. He went to sit in the recliner. She said, Sorry, I sat in the recliner, too. And just so you know, I also sat in every table around our kitchen, and I've laid on every bed in our house. You have nowhere to sit for the next week. It really messed with him about who is clean and who is unclean. Now, for him, he didn't become a Christian through this experience, but it, it, it generated a curiosity in his spirit about what it means to be a follower of God. But this whole idea about clean and unclean messed with the people of God for years. We're in a series right now called Why Jesus? We're walking through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're going to come to this story, and I want to begin here. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, it says this. Just then, just then, a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak. And she said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Now, Jewish society had all kinds of classifications where it was thought that men were more powerful than women, adults more powerful than children. There were classifications of Jew and Gentile sick and those who were healed. There were all kind of classifications, and we do this a lot today too. There are classifications about who is in and who is out. Maybe it's classifications of Memphis versus Kansas barbecue, or uh, U of M versus UT, or uh, Alabama fans, or Christians. I mean, like all kind of different classifications, right? Like we do this too. Now, for Jesus, one of the things Jesus saw to do was to demonstrate in his life what it means to break down walls of classifications. So when Jesus would heal, He was healing for the person, but he was also healing in a way to implement justice throughout the world. So for Jesus, it was about physical healing. It was also about helping to welcome people back into society. So this woman who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years, this story is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew gives you very little details. When I just read those two verses, that's really all Matthew gives about her condition. Mark and Luke give you a lot more information about her. We're not giving her name, but here's what you read if you, on the screen. And, and Mark, one thing he says is that uh, someone had told this woman about Jesus. One thing Luke tells you is that when this woman had been healed, that she told the entire crowd around her about her pain and about her healing. So both Mark and Luke also let you know that this woman had spent every, all of her money, every single penny she owned on trying to be healed. She had paid doctors, whatever health care was like then. She spent her money on it. Nothing worked. Twelve years, she was sick. So what Mark lets you know is that someone had told her about Jesus. That's why she went to Jesus. Someone told you about Jesus too at some point, right? And I want to believe there are people in your life right now who are waiting on you to tell them about Jesus because there's desperation in their life and they need to know where they need to reach. What Luke tells you is that this woman, apparently when she was healed, Luke lets you know that she paused to let this entire crowd around her know about this testimony that was now upon her life. She begins to bear witness to this crowd around her. Now, back then there were two classifications for women who experienced things throughout the year. One was a classification of a hina, and this is something that every woman is just like, is how God made you, that there are times throughout the year where you would be unclean and it would go a few days and you would be clean again. But then there was also what is called a Zaina, and this was a classification of an ongoing condition. And this ongoing condition in the life of a woman had what some thought was divine discipline, or maybe you would call it the wrath of God. So what happened if you had this ongoing condition, which is what the woman had that we're told about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what would happen is that this woman, she couldn't get married, and if she was married and then developed this condition, the husband could divorce her for it. So not only was this a physical problem in her life, it also created social distance, social isolation. So no wonder this woman was desperate to try to touch Jesus. She had lost everything in her life. Now, the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell you this story is this story is wrapped up in classification. Because this woman doesn't just come and rush up to Jesus at any point. What we're told is there's a, there's a Jesus is on his way somewhere. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 18, what it says is this. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. And the way this story is told is there's a synagogue leader who is like at the very top of all classifications. A synagogue leader who, Matthew, the way he tells the story, is his daughter is already dead. So Jesus is on the way to a house to try to make a girl well. And on the way to trying to make a girl well, you have a woman who's at the very lowest of all classifications who enters into this crowd, reaches out and touches Jesus, and she experiences healing. Now Jesus ends up going to a house where he's going to touch a dead girl and bring her back to life. So in this story, you have two people who are desperate for Jesus, two people who reach for Jesus, and two times Jesus turns to people. You have two stories of something that is unclean that touches Jesus, therefore making Jesus unclean, at least by the law. Because if you're a woman and you were unclean, any person you touch, they become unclean too. They became unclean too. So for this woman who had been experiencing this ongoing condition, for her to reach into a crowd and to touch Jesus, by law, made Jesus unclean. For Jesus to go into a house and to touch a corpse, which to touch any dead corpse made you unclean, this made Jesus unclean too. Jesus models what it means to love the unlovable and to touch the untouchable. Here's what Scott McKnight says. Scott McKnight said this, but the really odd thing about Jesus is that he absorbs the impure blow, transforms it, and then marvelously infects the impure person with his own purity. And this isn't something Jesus just did for this woman and this 12-year-old girl. It's something he has done for all of us. He absorbed all of our impurities and then transforms it and marvelously infects the impure person with his own purity. There's a man named Frank Morris, and he's a British journalist, and he set out on a journey to write a piece to argue that Jesus and Christianity is a myth. Now, to argue that Jesus and Christianity is a myth, you have to study Jesus and Christianity to know what you're arguing against. So he spent a lot of time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with knowing that what he wanted to do was to prove that this Jesus guy and this religion called Christianity, that it's all a myth. But the more he read the Gospels, the more he was drawn into Jesus. And the Gospels began to transform his life. And here's what he would go on to say, that the Gospels effected a revolution in my thought. Slowly but very de- definitely, the conviction grew that the drama of those unforgettable weeks of human history was, a, was stranger and deeper than it seemed. And here's a man who set out to prove that Christianity is a myth Who ends up studying the Gospels and reading the Gospels and then surrendering his life to the very one that he was trying to prove was a myth. Surrendering his life to Jesus as the Lord and Savior of his life. And what captivated him was the death on the cross and the resurrection and all these miracles that Jesus did. Believing that they were true. So in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, These are two chapters full of demonstration of the kingdom of God. Now, last week, we spent time in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever told. And here in just a moment, I'm going to walk you through chapter 8 and 9 of story after story that basically says, like, what, what in the entire world is Jesus not Lord over? You think about something in your life that isn't right, and what can Jesus not make right? What can Jesus not set right? And though the word justice doesn't show up in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus embodies everything you read about kingdom justice throughout the Old Testament. The kingdom justice is setting something right, setting the world right. And when Jesus comes to set things right, it's taking a human heart and setting them right with God and setting them right with society. This is often why Jesus would touch people before he would heal people. He's restoring them to society and then restoring them to wholeness and health. Very few people have taught me more about this, and probably many of, people, many of you participating in this worship service, more than our friend Lee Brown, who died just a few years ago. If you've been connected with Sycamore View more than three years, you, you have known Lee. You have seen him on Sundays. You have smelled Lee, and I don't mean that as, as something that's funny. Like A lot of times you would come into church and you would smell Lee before you would see Lee. Lee had lived on the streets of Memphis, on and off the streets for 20 years, and became a weekly, consistent, powerful voice in the life of this church. Taught us a lot about God. Uh, Lee taught us a lot, taught me a lot about what it means to love the unlovable and touch the untouchable and to receive from God. God used Lee to teach a lot of us about God's heart. There was one weeknight, and I was just telling my boys about this just the other day. There was one night, it was 12 a.m. in the morning, I get a call from Lee. And he is drunk out of his mind. Lee didn't drink all the time, but when Lee would drink, he didn't mess around with light stuff. He went all in. This was a night when Lee and Moonshine had spent a lot of time together. I said, Lee, where are you? He said, Pastor Josh, I'm walking down Poplar. I said, well, man... Let me get in my car I'll come find you. So I just started driving down Poplar. He didn't know where he was. He just knew he was on Poplar. And I got to Poplar right around the library close to East High School. And when Lee said he was walking down Poplar, he was literally walking down the middle of Poplar sideways. I don't know how Lee hadn't been hit. He was so drunk, I don't know how he hadn't fallen over on the ground. And I pulled up with my hazards on Lee got in my car and I said, here's what we're going to do, man. I'm going to hang out with you for a little while. We're going to go to E's, get you a burger, get some coffee. I said, "But here's the deal. If you throw up in my car, I'm taking you straight to the police station. I'm turning you in because the grace of God doesn't have limits, but my grace does. We hung out for a little while. Man, there there were multiple nights where I know Lee didn't just do this to me, where Lee would call with drama and you would show up and there really wasn't drama in his life. Lee just needed a friend. And Lee was used by God to teach me and to teach us that God shows up at all people, that God calls us to love the unlovable, to touch the untouchable. This is what God does. And Jesus demonstrates this, coming out of the greatest sermon ever told. Look at what happens in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. I'm just going to go through these quickly. You can go home and read it later. Look at all that happens just in these two chapters. Coming out of the greatest teacher sermon ever told. Matthew wants you to know, not only is Jesus a great teacher, Jesus demonstrates everything he teaches. Jesus heals a man with leprosy. He healed the centurion servant just with a word, not even with a touch, with the word of his mouth. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He drove out demons. He cured the sick. He calmed the storm. He cast out demons. He healed a paralyzed man. Multiple times throughout chapter eight and nine, you have Jesus having some radical call to discipleship. So there's demonstrations of the kingdom and then invitation for your life to come be a part of the kingdom. Multiple times this happens. He heals a woman who had been sick for 12 years and then he rose or brought back to life a girl who had been dead who was 12 years old. You read these stories and it's like Matthew wants you to know what can Jesus not do? What is Jesus not Lord over? He's Lord over everything. And then the way chapter 8 and 9 ends, it's with this story. It's in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. And I'm just going to read the first couple of verses. And it says this, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he, had, when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And Jesus ends up healing both of them. But this is a question that has haunted me in a good way for weeks now. Because at the end of two chapters full of demonstrations of the kingdom of God, the last story we get is a story that says, do you believe I'm able to do this? Like Whatever it is going on in your life right now, do you believe that Jesus is able to do it? Because I know right now, this room and the experience we're having this morning, those of you who are joining us virtually, there's anxiety. Do you believe Jesus is able to do, to, to do something about it? There's relational unrest. Do you believe Jesus is able to do it? There are things going on in your mind and in your bodies and chronic pain, and the list could go on. Do you believe Jesus is able to do it? Because I know for some of us, we wrestle with how we answer that question, either a yes or no. For some of us, our response is, yes, we believe you will. We believe you can, but will you? We believe you can do it, but will you do it? And I've been open in my life, that when my sister died back in 2010, I went through a faith crisis, and for me, my faith crisis was, and it is, for me, has never been, does God exist or does God not exist? I know some of you, that's been a real struggle in your life. For me, my faith crisis wasn't, does God exist or does God not exist? For me, my faith crisis was, when does God choose to stick God's hand in something and to perform miraculous powers, when does, when does God seem to keep His hands off? And what kind of impact would this have on my prayer life? So when my sister died, February of 2010, I was having to ask all these questions as a minister of this church, of what kind of prayer life am I going to have moving forward from this? Do I still believe that God performs the miraculous? And a few months after my sister died, one of my closest friends in the world, a preacher in Dallas, Chris Seidman, his oldest son, who was 11 at the time, ended up in the hospital for a month. And they weren't sure if he was going to make it. And God spared his life. And jealousy didn't come up in my heart of why did God choose to heal Skylar yet not heal my sister? There was gratitude and belief that God isn't going to heal everybody in the world but God still performs God's wonders. And somehow, and I'm not suggesting God healed Skylar just for me, but it energized and generated faith that I'm going to keep asking God for the miraculous whether it comes or not. So what I'm choosing to do in my life is I'm going to believe and I'm going to ask God for the miracle. And even when it doesn't come, I'm going to embrace the abiding presence of God as a guarantee of future restoration. And I think of people in this room right now that I can see faces who've been dealing with forms of pain for a long time, and I pray miracles over you. And if they don't come now, I'm embracing the abiding presence of God as a guarantee of future restoration that will come to you. Do you believe that God can do this? So what I'm doing throughout this series is I'm placing in front of you every week a truth, a grace, and a reach. And what it is, the truth is just the stories we read that day, what does it say about Jesus? What is true about Jesus? The grace is how does this connect you to God in your life? How does this connect you to God? And the reach is a challenge, a risk. And today the way I'm going to do it is with three questions. So today the truth is this. Do you believe Jesus is Lord over everything? And what does this mean for you? A grace is this. Do you believe Jesus wants to set you right? And if so, what are those things in your life you need to, you need to have set right? And a region of challenges challenge is this. Redeem for the sake of what? Because chapter 8 and 9 are all these demonstrations of the kingdom of God. And the very last thing you read in chapter 9 is Jesus saying this. The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And everything I've just set right, I want to bring into my fold and then use it for this harvest. And Jesus says, ask the Lord of the harvest to do this. Redeem for the sake of what? If you will, take the bread and the cup and hold it in your hand just for a moment. Hey, Jen, will you go back to that Scott McKnight quote in my notes? And as we come to the table today and we hold in our hands right now the body that was broken for us and the cup which represents the blood of Jesus that poured out for us, we're reminded there's nothing in your life and nothing in the world Jesus doesn't want to set right and won't set right at some point. And Jesus has taken on all of our sin and all of our brokenness. And has injected us with purity and wholeness. And we hold in our hand the miracle that sets everything right. But the really odd thing about Jesus is that he absorbs the impure blow, transforms it, and then marvelously infects the impure person with his own purity. Let's bow our heads. For God, in this moment, we give thanks for you, for the body, that was broken and that died for us and the blood the cup which represents the blood that flowed for us Jesus you went all in for us and through this meal we partake in right now give us the courage to go all in for you it's in the name of Jesus we pray today amen please take the bread and the cup